morning and welcome to the Transatlantic Leadership Network's Next Generation Emergent Leaders in Libya podcast series. I'm your host, Jonathan Roberts. Today, I'll be speaking with Sharif El Bijou. This is the second interview in our series featuring the thoughts of young professionals from across all of Libya's regions, as well as the diaspora abroad. Before we get started, for our listeners working in Libya or just interested in the country, I highly recommend that you pick up our edited volume, Unheard Voices of the Next Generation Emergent Leaders in Libya. This book, featuring all young Libyans, addressed important issues that Libya has confronted in the last decade. The authors offer a very informative window into the complex dynamics of a country that is historically and culturally rich. The English edition is distributed by Brookings Institution Press in Washington, D.C., and it will soon be available in Arabic through the Al Jazeera Center for Studies in Doha. With that, allow me to introduce our guest, Sharif El Bijou. Sharif is a strategy and investor relations analyst at the Bowick Group, a multi-channel banking company based in Europe. He has management degrees from King's College London, the University of East Anglia, and the London School of Economics. Sharif is a member of the Libyan diaspora abroad. Sharif, welcome, and Ramadan Karim. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Sharif, I'd say it's been about two months since we last spoke. You were a panelist at a virtual conversation we held with TLN's senior fellow, Ambassador John Craig. You had many great points during that discussion. I'm actually hoping to bring up a couple of those today in the limited time we have. But I'd like to start with your general impression of current events. Libya has not only rejected an effort to establish autocracy in the form of Haftar's failed campaign, but has also pulled together a new government, the government of national unity, headed by Abdel Hamid Debeba. How are you reacting to all of this? In my opinion, I think firstly I'd like to kind of uh, state, at least as you previously said, I think we should or kind of try to refrain from, or shall we say, uh, blame games and um, finger pointing, and instead a bit more try and focus on kind of working together to try and uh, build the best future possible for our country. So I think naturally everybody, all of us reject anybody who tries to hijack a civilian or democratically elected government through any means, whether it be by militia rule in one part of the country or military rule in another. Um, But yeah, I think overall definitely at the minute that we all agree this is a great uh, a great step forward and it's good to finally start seeing some positivity coming out of Libya after what has been a very challenging and tough uh, last few years um, but yeah I feel that forming the new temporary government especially uh, is the best way to get us back on the path to democratic elections at the end of the year and ultimately is the best approach that I think most people would definitely agree with and been looking forward to. In that same spirit Sharif how does Libya maintain its stride? How would you recommend your fellow Libyans, civil society organizations, the government, how can they capitalize and improve upon the developments, continue this positive wave? Um, I think I probably would answer that, I suppose, with, let's say, two recommendations, maybe to the government and then a recommendation or two to the people. So probably starting off with the government, I'd say that the people's critical needs are what must be addressed first and foremost. So if you look at it, to be honest, people are not asking for anything much. They're not asking for any, you know, crazy demands. They're literally just asking for the basic life essentials, you know, proper housing, education, medicine, security. Uh, so tackling these issues with real vigor, shall we say, uh, as hard as possible, as fast as possible, will definitely help alleviate concerns regarding, you know, mismanagement of funds, neglecting of duties and responsibilities by politicians. 
So for me, I'd strongly recommend, for example, like um, using independent or anti-corruption watchdogs or creating some kind of uh, uh, more empowered anti-corruption organizations, whether it be Libyan or foreign uh, organization, but really all about ensuring full transparency to kind of uh, regain trust from the people. Um, secondly, the key point would be definitely actually try to hold, to make sure that we actually hold the elections at the end of the year and not do what a lot of Libyan politicians are known for, frankly, which is delaying and pushing back elections again and again, partly as a way to stay in power longer and get more money from salaries and so on. But also part of that actually is also caused by uh, such low work productivity, let's say, because something that can be done in a week ends up taking a month. So this also helps uh, cause all the delays. So, yeah, the need to make sure the politicians actually are doing their jobs to the best of their ability and trying to stick to the deadlines. Uh, I think they really need to bear in mind that the world is watching and waiting, as are the Libyan people. So they really do need to take ownership um, of that responsibility. And um, in terms of for the people, I'd say, firstly, most importantly, learn to listen to each other and acknowledge differing opinions, agree to disagree, instead of this whole with me or against me mentality that's quite prevalent in Libya, and the need to really get out of the echo chamber. Um, ultimately, I guess you could say that tolerance is going to be the key for our stable future. Um, and lastly, for the people as well, just make sure your voice is heard, particularly those who traditionally have been a bit more sidelined or marginalised um, in Libyan society, for example, women's rights groups or immigrants, human rights groups, and so on. Uh, I think the new Libya, Libya needs to be a modern one where all these voices are heard and included at the decision-making table, not just after. You know, that's a great way you worded the government's responsibility in this process. The world is watching, the Libyan people are watching, and as you said, they're also waiting. I think that's a perfect point to draw in the role of those abroad. You yourself, Sharif, are a member of the Libyan diaspora. How do you see the diaspora's role in this process? Many of you live in developed democratic countries. Are there efforts to organize and support efforts in Libya? Um, yes, I would say that there are certainly efforts uh, to organize ourselves and have a more hands-on role, shall we say, in rebuilding our country. Um, Libya is essentially a blank canvas in that it's missing a lot of the stuff that we have grown up with um, and that we must take for granted in the Western countries. So. Previously, there have been moments in the past of some animosity against those who have lived abroad, but I think that sentiment, to be honest, is a bit more, um, comes from the older generations who lived under uh, decades of Gaddafi propaganda. Um, so the younger generations are much more open to communication, collaborating, internationalization, uh, and they do it through various kind of platforms, including social media, business partnerships, and so on between those inside and outside of Libya. Um, so yeah, and of course, obviously, through programs like this uh, that I'm talking on now, and on TLN, you know, uh, TLN panel discussions last time, for example, where we got to hear the voices of different Libyan youth from a range of different backgrounds, including those living in Libya and those raised outside like myself. So I see the role of the diaspora, including my role uh, as being part of it, basically, is to take it upon ourselves to try and bring the knowledge and skills that we've learned while living abroad back into Libya, whether it be in a range of different fields. So it could be healthcare, education, arts, for example, anything and transfer these best practices that we learn abroad and to try and better the country any way we can. So I know that many of us are extremely eager to have a hand in building back the country better. So yes, certainly there are many efforts. Well, let's talk about those fields of expertise needed in this blank canvas, as you put it, Sharif, specifically your fields of expertise. You are a businessman, a banking and investment professional. Let's turn to Libya's economy and reconstruction. 
I've personally read estimates that Libya would need to spend close to $500 billion to import over 3 million foreign workers for reconstruction efforts. What are your thoughts on what Libya needs to do to diversify its economy, to make it less dependent on the state, and ultimately to innovate and modernize into a 21st century economy? It, w- it will cost a lot of money, uh, and yet to not sugarcoat will be misleading here. I think we should all be clear, this will mean first and foremost, before, all of any, you know, before much of this can happen, a dramatic improvement needs to be made to the security situation in Libya. Uh, also because there will be a lot of um, foreign you know, companies or workers and so on who probably don't want to come to Libya if it's unsafe. So that would be um, one of the first things that does need to be tackled. But otherwise, uh, looking past that, yes, it will be extremely tough. But if the, I'd say if the will and the drive is there from the people themselves, firstly, but secondly, with capable leadership steering the economy in the right direction for the future, I think it can be done. Um, I'll go into this by probably touching on, let's say, five or six points in brief detail. Um, examples like firstly would require pretty much a complete overhaul of our current economic system so meaning reducing reliance on the state for steering the economy and improving the private sector and that includes uh, reducing the number of government employees from the incredibly bloated and inefficient public se- sector that we have um, and maybe outsource certain sure. worker processes to private and or foreign companies um, the government also needs to reduce subsidies for utilities that costs enormous sums from the budget every year and should try to attract some FDI, uh, foreign direct investment, in different industries, like including tourism, but that's ob- obviously uh, heavily affected by security. So that's probably more of a longer term topic, shall we say? Uh, but even in industry like revamping, sure. in, you know, revamping infrastructure or uh, overall attracting investment in non-oil and gas sectors. So, like you mentioned, I previously said, renewable energy in particular is a huge opportunity for Libya because we have a enormous desert. We have two thousand kilometers of coastline. That all can provide ample, you know, cheap energy from solar, tidal power, and so on. And we can then use that domestically, and any excess can be sold abroad. For example, whether whether we like it or not, our oil is quickly the oil is quickly becoming worthless. So we do need to look elsewhere. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I'd say that Libya, unfortunately, like a lot of the Arab world, actually has a very large young population of working age people. However, it's got incredibly high youth unemployment, and that, frankly, is an enormous waste of squandered human talent and productivity and that all is stuff that we very much need right now so i think a good way to probably uh, train and employ large numbers of this youth could be through things like building large-scale infrastructure projects and maybe using let's say foreign companies who can do it faster or cheaper or maybe both and we try to enforce a bit of a mo- minimum local workforce quota on them for example to ensure that libyans also benefit from increased employment and learn new skills so we hit two birds with one stone basically um and the government should also help try and fund some apprenticeship schemes and internships and graduate programs and so on for, let's say, government ministry or civil service jobs. Uh, all about training the next generation, basically, to take the wheel after them. Um, that was the next uh, point. Then I would say also the financial and monetary sector, frankly, needs an overhaul, uh, especially in the black market, which needs to be removed. Our financial system needs to be open to the world and allow freedom of moving money and enabling liquidity. So, yeah, I mean, let's not be under any illusion either. That will be tough because there's a lot of powerful people that are involved in uh, the black market and politics. Um, So, yeah, that certainly will be a challenge. Uh, Another aspect to look at is gender equality, I think, plays a big role in the future success of the economy too. Um, Because even just getting women in the workplace is going to give an enormous boost to our GDP. It's going to increase the labour pool. 
uh, and the overall productivity of the country. Whereas currently there's a lot of highly skilled women that just are not working also for cultural reasons, yes, but also the economy isn't even trying to accommodate those that are trying to work. It's very uh, male-oriented, uh, our work society at the minute. Um, and yeah, I think I also maybe touched on previously some special economic zones, which I think can also uh, help a country's in industrialization process. So that's especially um, a good way of attracting FDI, creating jobs and exports and so on. But uh, I think for us, because there have been mixed uh, results across the world, like it worked well in China and Singapore, Malaysia, but in sub-Saharan Africa, not so well. So I think, for example, for us, a good um, approach, what would work best is if we try and focus on creating the more is like high tech zones. So let's say containing science and innovation parks, and that can help bring about more impactful change in the country because then we can establish, let's say, R&D capabilities in Libya. So that way we are able to attract high skill and high paid jobs and the whole ecosystem, you know, that comes with it. Uh, not exactly Silicon Valley, but let's just say, you know, uh, a smaller scale Silicon Valley, the Libyan style um, that can comes sure, with sure. it. Um, and then, yeah, the state should also support or subsidize these kind of infant industries to help them establish themselves first, maybe one day even become a hub of R&D in Africa, for example, uh, especially with the new African Free Trade Agreement that's coming. You know, we should try to uh, push forward with this stuff. Maybe we can leapfrog that lower skill industrialization phase and move a bit quicker to the higher value sectors. Um, and yes, yeah, and lastly, last point. Uh, on this topic is we need to embrace digitalization as well. That's the thing before I mentioned about, uh, for example, bringing it into things like voting or public services, renewing documents, even like national IDs, banking services, access to healthcare records, uh, learning resources. There's so much stuff you can digitize. And I think I mentioned on the last panel discussion as well that um, Estonia was a great example of kind of future proofing and digitizing. So, yeah, I think for us, this digitalization, future-proofing, for it to be as effective as possible, we also have to teach, uh, teach it at an early stage. So teach computing and coding skills in the school curriculum, as, frankly, these are going to be the industries of the future, and it's the best way for us to catch up to the rest of the developed world. So, yeah, I mean, I can obviously go on forever with these, you know, the list of stuff we need to focus on, but I'd say at least these would be a good call, um, uh, course selection to start with. You've mentioned quite a few fascinating points here, and there's clearly a much longer conversation to be had given the sheer diversity of sectors that you've already mentioned. For our listeners, some of these topics are going to be covered in future events that we host. So I encourage you to visit our website at www.transatlantic.org to see what's coming down the pipeline in podcasts, videos, and other events. We're closing it on time, but I'd like to end with a quote from you, Sharif, from our event a couple of months ago. You said, it is time we Libyans look into the future and start writing the new story of our country, from a tale of chaos to one of prosperity. To achieve this, we need to acknowledge opinions we disagree with and build collaboration, unity, and acceptance. Really encompasses what we've been speaking about today. So Sharif, thank you for being with us, and I leave it to you for any final words. Just, yeah, thank you for having me, and yeah, it's been great as per usual. Thank you. Sharif, thank you again, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. For those of you of the Islamic faith, I wish you a blessed holy month of Ramadan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to being with you next time for the Next Generation Emergent Leaders in Libya podcast series.